the majority of Christians in China aren't political, they simply want to follow their faith. The idea that you can, even in a totalitarian society or an authoritarian society, if you wish, that has a lot of, of coercion, coercive means at its disposal, that you can eliminate traditional spirituality, I, I think is mistaken. You can push it down, but it's going to bubble up some other place. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me for today's episode, we have from the China Institute at the University of Alberta, the Director Emeritus Gordon Holden, and uh, someone who spent over two decades working for the government and international affairs for China. Thanks for making the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Let's start with something light. You've spent lots of time over in uh, this very significant country. Uh, What's the best food you ever had there? Oh, my goodness. You know, Chinese, uh, China would be very boring if all 1.4 billion people are all alike. Uh, it's a country of regions, like mm-hmm. our own country. Yeah. And that includes food. And when conversation would flag at a banquet around a huge round table, I would sometimes gin things up by saying, well, um, is it true that Sichuan food is the best? And I can guarantee you, like 45 minutes later, they're still arguing about the point. Chinese are fiercely regional, proud of their own particular provincial preferences. And these are provinces that can be 60, 80, 100 million strong. And it's a never-ending debate. Everyone will have their preferences. Um, I like Cantonese food. I like Sichuan. I like the northern cuisine as well, particularly noodles Hmm. and those sorts of things. But if you get into some regions, um, Xiangxi province, for example, Donkey is a favorite. Well, really, not mine. Yeah, not mine. But it's a traditional dish, not for me. You know, there's a there's a vast range, and in the far west, in Xinjiang, you find there's a where the majority of the people are Muslim. You'll find somewhat similar to foods you might find in Central Asia. It's a complex place. Would you say a lot of it is an acquired taste, or uh, you enjoy it from the get go? I think it is an acquired taste. Uh, and my first. Way back in 1981, when I first started studying Chinese, the government sent me to Chinese University in Hong Kong to study Chinese. And on my first couple of days, after only a couple of days of lessons, I went down to the very unspecial cafeteria where they serve foods in, in uh, metal containers. Uh, Hong Kong was a much poorer place then. And I ordered what I thought was a hamburger. Mm-hmm. And I got a bed of white rice with two duck's feet standing on the rice and then covered with a brown sauce. And my immediate conclusion was, Gordon, you're going to have to learn Chinese fast if you're going to eat what you want to eat. All I could think of, where's that duck been standing? Um, oh, my and, goodness. You know, duck's feet are not my favorite. But when you say acquired taste, you know, I'm in my 36th year of full-time work on China. I've had lots of time to acquire that taste, and it's one of the world's great cuisines. Uh, with lots of regional variety, like French cuisine or Italian, where there's regional variations, it's it's quite marvelous. Doesn't mean you have to like everything, and I don't. Uh, but there's lots of things I do like. Mm. Gordon, so interesting that you first went over to uh, that university in Hong Kong to study Chinese, and as you say, 36 years uh, working on this beat. What led you to have such an interest in this country? Well, it's curious. I've always been. I think it was Napoleon who said, march to the sound of the guns. It doesn't mean literally, but means go to where the action is. Uh, my first posting, because I spoke Spanish already, was in Havana, uh, a country that was in difficult circumstances. The people are charming, the government not so much, but I like languages. And I'd worked as an archaeologist in Latin America. And then after that, 
my Spanish was quite good, but I realized that Cuba is a small place, so I wanted to tackle bigger issues. Many people wanted to, where how could you get me sent to London or Paris or Washington? I, I was not at all afraid of hardship posts, they call them, mm-hmm. and it was at the time very much so. Uh, but learning Chinese is not uh, a walk in the park. It takes for an adult to be able to to use Chinese fluently, be able to read and hopefully write. You're looking at a minimum of two years. So uh, I was two years in the Chinese university before being sent to Beijing. So it was really, a, I suppose, an intellectual interest mm. in, in China. Uh, it was still a fairly closed place in that time. Even when I got to Beijing in 1983, when the opening, Hong Kong was a British colony, of course. When I got to Beijing, it was still very much just still coming out of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Chinese were very wary of talking to foreigners. Uh, it was a tough place to, uh, people were very poor. And it was a tough place to develop close contacts with the Chinese people. You mentioned the phrase where the action is, and you said there's an intellectual interest. What sort of action were you uh, having your ear to the ground at the beginning when you were in China that you were really uh, trying to figure out? I think before I went, what had been in the news and really been dominating the China's place in the world was this strategic alliance that Nixon and Kissinger, Mao and Zhou Enlai had developed with China, a counterbalance to the Soviet Union. The China and the U.S. didn't have much in common. Both Mao and Nixon had been had strong antipathy towards the other, but they sort of realized that the Soviet Union, they felt, was their shared enemy. And sometimes the um, enemy enemy is my friend. I think both leaders took that perspective. But by the time I got there, and as a relative junior officer spending a fair amount of time out of the embassy and in the field, I began to be fascinated by the dynamics, internal dynamics of China, the history, which is very rich and very complex, and the Chinese people. What trying to figure out what made them tick. Hmm. Uh, so my interest started, I suppose, with China's place in the world and then got drawn into the, the, the mechanics of China. So interesting how the, the Soviet Union played a factor in, in China in some ways having more of a seat at the table with, uh, with trade. I want to ask you about the vested interest that China has had in Canada. How did you start to unravel this? I know you wrote about it recently. It goes back a long way. And I think that Keep in mind that in the late 60s, when relationship between Beijing and Washington was beginning to thaw, ping pong, diplomacy, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. secret high-level contacts between the two governments, Canada had actually been interested in established relationship with China for some time, but had been warned off by the United States. And about the same time, as it was clear the United States was moving towards a towards maybe not a formal relationship, but informal contacts and high-level discussions behind closed doors, uh, Canada then said, okay, we need to move forward. So it took a couple of years of behind-the-scenes discussions, much of it taking place in our each embassy in Warsaw, Poland, mm-hmm. but with high-level interest from, from the government. And China, I think the, the interest of Canada is partly in trade. Uh, the conservatives in the late 50s have begun to sell wheat to China. Mm-hmm. Let it continue in the 60s. Um, there's a fascination by former Prime Minister Trudeau in China. I can speak about that in a moment. For the Chinese side, there was an economic link, but I think they also saw us as potentially a door opener to the United States. 
when they finally did get around to establish relations on October 13th, 1970, their first ambassador, very, very senior, was in Canada very briefly and then went on to be their ambassador to the United Nations, later their foreign minister, uh, because they had, in 1971, I believe, gained entry to the United Nations. So we were interesting to them, one of the first Western countries they had relations with. Mm. But it was high-level stuff, high politics, I think probably on both sides, curiosity, a mix of curiosity as well. Well, you mentioned uh, Pierre Trudeau, and he had a curiosity with China too, didn't he? He wrote about the fact that his first real knowledge of China was when he went to his parish. Uh, there had been, I think he, he called it collecting dimes for China, where the parishioners would give small contributions to fund a Catholic missionary work. This would have been, I'm thinking, it couldn't have been later than the 1940s or very beginning 1950s, because by 52 or 53, all the missionaries had been booted out of China. So that was one of his first points of contact. Then in the 1960, he went with Jacques Hubert, one of the few Westerners who went to China at that time, and they wrote a book called Two Innocents in China. Uh, but he had been, uh, to jump back a bit, he had been in Shanghai visiting a friend in Shanghai who was himself a missionary. He was there at the time when, just before the communist armies arrived and, and took Shanghai, he got on one of those last ships that left Shanghai. So then it comes back and back. And uh, I, I met him on one of his trips to China as prime minister, his last trip to China as prime minister. And then he came back a few times after that and I had a chance to meet him then. So that was a, a longstanding interest. I mean, it goes without saying where we are now today as we as we speed up the timeline with Trudeau, but not to go right to uh, the recent news. Uh, what would be some other high points that you would highlight between Canada and China into the 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s? Well, if you go back, when we established relations in 1970, that was politically correct in the sense we had embassies after that, very shortly after that, we had they went had receptions, they had national days, but there was very little substance. Even when I arrived in Beijing in 1981, one of my colleagues in our then small embassy had a, a logbook that listed the visas written out by hand uh, that were issued. There were less than a thousand. I mean, pre-COVID, there were closing in on a million Chinese coming to Canada in 2019. It was about seven, north of 700,000. Uh, so that was tiny. As well, the trade was was tiny. I mean, I suspect that people listening in whose houses were, th were worth as much as the trade in a given year wow. during that period during the Cultural Revolution. China was very poor, very closed. Uh, what happened in 78, though, was Deng Xiaoping brought in a policy of open door, of opening up China, learning from the West, which is something they'd refused to do for almost 30 years. It took a while for those policies to begin to take root, starting in the countryside and then later, much later, moving to cities. But that acceleration of the Chinese economy began to change everything in a sense, and that minuscule relationship became significant. It's still a distant, distant second in our tr in our trade, overall exports, mm -hmm. dominated by the United States. But that's what really gave the relationship substance. Plus, Deng Xiaoping opened up the gates to emigration. I think he basically came to the conclusion, like, why? We're over a billion people. Why are we not being restrictive on allowing our citizens to leave? And the, the Chinese policy changed, and then 
of course, have been Chinese in Canada for a couple hundred years. But that explosion in numbers or rapid increase in numbers really began in the um, 1980s and that we now have probably somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million Canadians of Chinese heritage. So these are the things that gave substance to what had been a correct relationship before. Mm. However, when you have a more robust relationship, people, goods, trade, when China has a more active policy globally, more ironically, a more robust relationship often ends up meaning more trouble, more problems. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit where we're at now. Lots of trade, lots of people-to-people contacts, and much more powerful China. Um, and so it's not a boutique relationship in one corner of global affairs now. It involves the whole country in one way or the other. You mentioned this this troubled aspect to a relationship that that sort of matures. Why is that? Well, I think it's greater knowledge for one thing. I'm glad you gave me a chance to talk a little about the past because for all of us and for every country, if you don't understand the past, it's hard to, in my view, understand the present and certainly the future. Tiananmen was a big challenge. I think prior to Tiananmen, for the West, not just Canada, in 1988, Deng Xiaoping was on the front page of Time magazine. China scene is modernizing. They're going to be just like us. It's going to be one big, open, friendly consumer. We can all get rich selling things to China. Tiananmen was a shook the confidence of the world. And mm. in my opinion, the positive, you can see in the in the polling, positive views of China never completely recovered after 1989. They improved from the depths of 1989, but they never completely improved. And yes, um, the two Michaels, political interference, have met further dips. But if you look at the period, that's the second decade of the teens, I suppose you could call it, the second decade of the century, views were hardening in terms of public views. China's conduct abroad, more detailed reporting on China's treatment of religious minorities and of ethnic minorities, lack of press freedom, etc. So that bloom uh, was off already. And of course, the uh, two Michaels sent it into, into the dumpster, combined with Meng Wanzhou from the Chinese perspective, and now allegations of interference which seem to have a new wrinkle every single day. Uh, but just to put in a bit of context, that downward spiral had begun. Mm. It's accelerated. And going back to the the current interference speculations in Canadian elections, what are your, what are your thoughts on that specifically? Well, I'm not an intelligence agency. I haven't seen classified information since I left government in 2008. Um, I spent decades reading that stuff, but I don't have... So I have a sense of how China operates, but I can't refer to anything I read before, and I'm not current. I don't, unlike it seems the Global Mail, have access to, to classified documents, which is in itself highly unusual. My own take is that if you look at China, their intelligence organizations, both the Ministry of State Security and the PLA intelligence, are extremely powerful compared to, say, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They have even the Ministry of Public Security, okay, looking at internal security. These are powerful organizations that whose views cannot be easily ignored or are not ignored uh, by the Communist Party of China, which is in overall control. So controlling them or... or it, it, if you said to the Chinese leadership, well, some of the things that they do are going to be, might hurt our relationship, 
I don't think that means they stop. There have been Chinese intelligence operations in our country before 1970, before there's even an embassy here, by various means. And it's not a surprise to my audience, I think, that when I say that Chinese intelligence operates globally, quite frankly, the CIA operates globally. The problem for Canada is they don't um, – U.S. is our ally, China is not. Mm. And so you can't assume and you shouldn't assume that what Chinese intelligence does in this country is in our net interest. That's not their point. That's not their goal. And it's recurring. And quite frankly, whatever we do, it won't end forever. I refer it to sometimes as, as being like crabgrass. You pull it up, as if you're a gardener, but you know it's going to grow back. You go back another month later, you'll pull it up again. It won't, it won't disappear because it works on its own impetus, serving Chinese interests. But that doesn't mean you should pull it up. You do have to curb it or control it in some fashion. But just don't delude yourself, in my view. When shouldn't We shouldn't delude ourselves that it's going to be gone forever. Gordon, in, in recent years, there's been some big concerns for Canadians on China's human rights. Uh, within that is religious rights. And yet there appears to be this paradox because uh, religious rights are being clamped down on. And yet it's been documented that Christianity, for example, is growing like rapid fire in China. What would you attribute something like that to? To me, the the answer goes back a good long way. And one of the problems, which I saw, I've worked in Canadian embassies in three communist countries and three continents. One of the problems of communism, there's many, economic, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the problems is when you destroy traditional value systems, then I think you create a void. That was true in in Cuba, which wasn't a particularly religious society, but the Catholic Church was significant. And it was, I can recall, when fences were when I fences being metal fences being put up around churches in Poland, I'll come back to China. In Poland, one of the great strengths and one of the reasons that the rebellion, in effect, against the Soviet Union really got underway in, in Poland was the Soviets never quite had the nerve to attempt to crush the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church became a locus of resistance. They were sometimes penetrated by the Polish or Soviet security services, but the Catholic Church was strong there. I can recall going with my family to a place called Zakopany in the mountains of, of Poland. It was Christmas service. It was 20 below um, outside, and the church was packed. It wasn't a very big church. And when I went outside, there were teenagers kneeling in the snow. They had a loudspeaker so they could take part in the service. Well, that boggled my mind. I've never seen that anywhere else on earth. Ironically, now that Poland is free and the Poles don't necessarily need the Catholic Church, it's not quite as influential, but still very influential. So you look at China, starting with the revolution. Again, the religious institutions were, were closed. Missionaries were all kicked out. And being a member of the of religious organization virtually always meant that you couldn't be a party member, and hence you to shut out of, of governance. I think by destroying those traditional values, and there are lots of them, they're not all religious. Some of them are things like Confucian views about respect for ancestors, sometimes exaggerated, but an important thing, honor your father and mother, deep respect for education, which has not disappeared from China. But many of those traditional values were either discarded, particularly during the Cultural Revolution, Professors were, matters to me because I was a professor for 15 years, were humiliated, sometimes beaten, sometimes beaten to death. 
people who had strong connections with religious institutions or had clung to those were in, went from being respected to being at the bottom of the heap. So they destroyed that, but and they tried to put in face a, a quasi-religion based on Marxism and Leninism, but at the end it wasn't satisfying. I don't think it spoke to the spiritual needs of the people, and I still think that you have materialism. That's been immensely successful. Poverty in China has not been eliminated, but I do celebrate the fact you don't see children in rags or thin people who just lack of food. But I think for the younger people in particular, materialism, shopping centers, etc., that's not enough. It's obviously going to be multiple factors as to the appeal of religion. But humans are stubborn. And when you tell people long enough that they can't do something, often a reaction is the opposite. And mm. it's not just Christianity, which is growing. In fact, it's theoretically possible that you could have, given that religious observance has dropped off in the United States, not as much as in Canada, but that you could have more Christians in China than any other place, just as the population is so huge. I'm not sure that'll be allowed to happen. And it isn't just Christianity. Buddhism has done well. Islam is under a lot of pressure because it's seen as a political enemy to some extent and is seen as a political a political function. I think the majority of Christians in China aren't aren't political. They simply want to to follow their faith. There are exceptions. The idea that you can, even in a totalitarian society or an authoritarian society, if you wish, that has a lot of, of coercion, coercive means at its disposal, that you can eliminate um, traditional spiritual uh, spirituality, I, I think is mistaken. You can push it down, but it's going to bubble up some other place. Okay, well, that's super fascinating. We've been in conversation with Gordon Holden from the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Uh, your vantage point has just brought such insight uh, to this conversation around Canada and China. Thank you for making the time. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. It was first the best-selling book before it became an adventure drama film. A boy and a tiger stranded on a lifeboat for survival. Don't miss my conversation with award-winning author Yan Martel on the creation of his famous story and the underlying religion and spirituality that the book Life of Pi explores. The point is you have to believe in something because that's who we are as a species. That's the point of all that imaginative capacity we have is to imagine alternate states. In a sense, life is a democracy. You have a vote, so vote. You know, vote for something else and use your imagination. In this case, I'm just saying, why not believe that there's possibly a God out there? If you're if you're to be hit by a car, let's say, you can hit the tarmac, you can hit the road, be splattered completely and die and just say, well, that's it. I'm just part of the chemical soup and I'm vanished and there's nothing left. Or you could say, I'm hitting the road on the other side of this pavement is heaven. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.